I remember he was a short guy who coughed a lot, uh, but he had a very, very steely, um, penetrating voice. He came right out with it. He says, so what, are you in or not? Well, by tomorrow noon, we want your decision. Now I had to make a real decision, a life-changing decision. Welcome to Spice Up Your Life. Welcome to our first uh, ever show in English. It's also our first interview done via Skype. So it's kind of the first time for a lot today. My name is Mikael Hulin and today we have a very, very special guest and I'm very honored. Uh, he was recruited by the KGB and spent 10 years as an undercover agent in the United States. He is the longest surviving known member of the KGB illegals program that operated during the Cold War. Finally, he was uh, captured by the FBI in 1997. A quote by Joe Weisberg. An incredible look at the astounding journey of a KGB officer in the midst of the Cold War. Heartbreaking, exciting, intriguing. Hello. Today we have a very special guest, uh, ex-KGB undercover agent, illegal in the US, author, husband and a very proud father. Welcome Jack Barsky. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's a that's a first for me uh, to speak to a Swedish audience. Yeah, good. Well, you you have um, maybe I should call you William Dyson or Henry van Randall or <laughs> <laughs> Albrecht Dietrich. You read the book. You read the book. <laughs> yeah, a couple of times. It's an amazing book called Deep Undercover. Why why, why did you write this book? It's ultimately it's a it's a reckoning. It's it's coming clean with the past. It's. Uh, it's clearing the clutter in my brain uh, and, you know, and getting back to sort of normal to the extent uh, somebody who lived uh, under two identities for, for a number of years can be normal. Just in short, t- tell me uh, before we go in deeper into the book, what, what, what is the book about? Well, it's really <clears throat> the story of my life uh, uh, from beginning to when I stopped writing pretty much. Uh, There's more that happened afterwards. I just like run into all kinds of situations that are just mind boggling and interesting. So it starts, the book starts with, uh, you know, my birth and the environment I was born into. And, uh, you know, episodes out of uh, school and, uh, you know, middle school, high school, university, where I almost killed myself a couple of times because I studied chemistry and I wasn't really that skillful in the lab. (laughs) Uh, and then how I how I eventually was uh, recruited by the KGB, got the training, uh, was trained for four and a half years, was and then was launched and acquired uh, uh, the, the command of English uh, to a point that it was clearly fluent uh, and uh, uh, you know you put a number on it, ninety five percent accent free, good enough to come to the United States and pretend to have been born here. Mm. Uh, and uh, so I arrived in New York in 1978 and uh, did did work for the KGB for 10 years. And then the, the next part is the story of how I 
resigned from the KGB. I may have been one of the few people who did that and got away with it. Alive. And 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 then how the FBI found me and how I operated, how I worked with the FBI, and finally, it sort of ends with uh, getting a new chance to lead a somewhat normal life with a new family. And uh, uh, you pointed that out already. And with an, with uh, my last child, a daughter who is brilliant, not easy to to deal with. <laughs> She's got my genes, and I love her, you know, as much as I love anybody. So yeah. that's 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 my book. Well, tell me a little bit about li- life in former East Germany in the fifties and sixties. Well, you know, I can I can give you uh, two views. One of them would be what I remember personally, and the other is what I uh, got through the tales of my parents and research as to what it was like mm-hmm. to, uh, at the time uh, that I do not personally remember. I just I just know that basically as a foundation, East Germany was incredibly poor, so it was really, really a hard time to start over for my parents and 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 then to raise a child uh food rationing uh stopped in the late 50s i was about 10 or 11 years old when i remember i didn't need when i went shopping to the local store i didn't need those little uh, coupons anymore Mm -hmm. up until then food was rationed you know the basics butter uh meat if you could even get it uh, milk uh, sugar flour uh, and in terms of, you know, everything else, you know, for Christmas, we got one present, maybe, you know, yeah. if I got a soccer, soccer ball, you know, I was happy as a pig and you know what. Uh, so it, it, the bottom line is we were dirt poor, but none of us knew it because everybody else around us was just as poor. Mm. And we didn't have a view of the other, you know, the other Germany or what it might be like to live in a somewhat prosperous country. So what, you know, know, the the one thing I got to say, I don't remember having gone hungry ever, but I do remember a lot of bad food. But still you write with a very sensitive, almost romantic pen about uh, when you describe East Germany in your childhood. You know, you can't just badmouth it because there was no... Here's here's some some good part good things about this. There was no crime that we were aware of. Kids were roaming around freely because parents weren't weren't concerned with anything happening to us. Um, and uh, and uh, there was a because of the the universal poverty, there was a sense of uh, belonging. You know, neighbors were hanging out with neighbors. Yeah. You know, nobody had a television. And, and you know, people wouldn't just hang out by the radio. They would just come outside and hang out. There were some, some of these things by force uh, were not so bad. But, but overall, I wouldn't want to uh, wish this on any young person to grow up in that kind of uh, an environment. There, there are a few lo- love affairs in your book, and and your first real love, Rosie, uh, seems yeah. to have affected you quite a lot. Can, tell me how. Yeah, it, it sounds like crazy, but I think there's 
there's a certain number of people who can relate to this. Uh, um, I just was hungry for love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't get it from my parents. Uh, not the kind of love that, you know, where they hug and kiss you and uh, just really love on you rather than just taking care of you. Mm. They took good good care of me, but this other stuff I never got. And, you know, as I became a teenager, I was just, you know, looking at the girls. And uh, for co- for several years, I had just admired them from afar, you know, because I was sort of too shy. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't feel like I, you know, I could approach them because to me, girls were like magical beings they were pretty and we were not <laughs> and you know they were just like they, they were just to be put admired and to be put on a pedestal then at the age of 16 this this girl actually had an interest in me and she took initi- the initiative mm-hmm. and she, she she got close to me and uh, and I felt like whoa who who and before before I knew it I was like head over heels in love and you know I, at, and at that point I I already made plans for the future. I was, you know, was going to get married to her, and I would re- take really good care of her. and And I started actually studying. Mm-hmm. Before that, I didn't study. I mm-hmm. was a B plus student, and when I started su- studying, I got nothing but A's. And you know, sort of, I had dedicated almost every A to her. And everybody in the school, the teachers, uh, my friends, everybody knew that we we were the one couple that would get married. Uh-huh. Very soon after graduating from high school, and uh, then it was time to say goodbye. And she uh, was accepted uh, to study in at a, at Humboldt University in Berlin, mm-hmm. and I went to a town uh, about 200 miles south of there, uh, Jena, uh, and that in those days that was a a distance you could not easily cover. Mm-hmm. We Nobody had cars, no motorcycle. Uh, the trains w- were so slow, it would take pretty much a half a day to go from one place to another, and then you still have to take public transportation. So it wasn't like you could just, like, you know, go visit. Uh, there were no telephones. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there was no Internet. So, when the, so the only communication that uh, was uh, possible was through the mail. And my very, the very first letter I received from her, and you know, I opened this letter and I was just so excited to read. And I don't remember the wording, but the first sentence pretty much said, "Hey, I'm breaking up with you. Uh, don't, don't, uh, don't even, don't be even attempt to win me back." You know, my world, my my world just like came to to a crashing end. Yeah. Because you know, I really had dedicated my entire being to this lady. And now what? So what What was there left for me to do? You know, I studied like a maniac. I did not date any girls for the next three years. I became like the number one student. There wasn't nobody even a close second. You know, that we, there were situations when we had uh, uh, written tests and I got an A and the best the best one after me had a C. You know, that's not bragging. I just worked very hard. I wasn't necessarily smarter, but, you know, I had nothing else to do. So in, 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 in some ways, she helped me. Uh, and, uh, but it, it took a long time to overcome this, the, the, uh, the, the hardness, you know, the, the thick skin that, that I acquired because I, I was not ready to love again. I really thought I'd, that, that part of my life would be over. But, but it, it, wasn't, it turned out to be somewhat different.
it's quite soon after you write the um, the ability to keep marching toward a goal without being held back by feelings or relationships was essential to building an undercover identity in another country. That's a a very astute comment uh, because let's say I uh, at the time the KGB approached me and made that suggestion that uh, you know that that I might uh, be qualified and to to do this kind of work that I wound up doing. if I had had a steady relationship, a girlfriend or a fiance or even a wife, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have agreed to this. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, my best friend, German friend, who is in the book Günther, mm-hmm. uh, w- was approached, I, I think, by the Stasi, to do this kind of work in West Germany, and he was married, and he discussed it with his wife, even though he wasn't supposedly to do do that, yeah. and they both agreed, no, we're not going to do this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, she she actually you know played a Rosie played a an important role on behalf of the KGB in, in their recruiting efforts without them knowing it. It, it. She just prepared me emotionally to be able to to, to just like uh, not worry about mm-hmm. the feelings didn't play much of a role other than the feelings I had about you know pride in my own ability to to you know do very well at whatever I was. Yeah, was uh, tackling. But are are you sure that they were not involved in? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You you never know. She may have been recruited a, a, ahead of me, and and they just told her to now you gotta break up with him. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> it's quite soon after that that you're both um, Günther addresses you with something uh, almost demanding you to to um, join the the party. T- tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you see. Uh, uh, it was interesting. I, I was never a joiner, uh, even though I believed in, in communism and communist ideology. When we were approached at the end of high school, uh, we were approached to, we were recruited to, you know, just join the party. Yeah. There were three out of 20 in my class became party members. I declined. I had no use for that. I didn't want to join. And um, but when when I was at university, the stakes were a lot higher and the pressure was bigger because the one thing I knew that if you wanted to have a really good career in East Germany in those days, uh, being a party member was not a requirement, but it was a huge plus. Okay, it was was a huge plus so and and when when i had two friends in in in, in the group that uh, that uh, hung out together in, in the lab it was Günther and the other fellow i didn't write about but we hung out quite a bit and they were both party members and when i was approached by Günther and then also by one of the professors you know like you know it was hard to say no and you know it was just a matter of now I was going to be. Jo- I already knew the kind of group that I was going to be joining, as opposed to just become a member and then go off in, in, into another world. And then all of a sudden, there's a you're studying in your dorm, and then there's a knock on the door, what, on your room door. What, what happens? Well, I was in my towards the end of my third year as a uh, chemistry student. <clears throat> it was on a Saturday. I know this because 
uh, I had one roommate, and he typically left to go home over the weekend. And I also know it was Saturday because Saturdays I studied during the day. Okay, so I'm sitting there and and, and I'm you know working with my my notes and textbooks and so forth. And there's a knock on the door. Now you must understand one thing. Um, this was a, uh, a a dorm with many many different rooms. But the custom was when you knock, the next thing you open the door and go in. You did not wait for the come on in response. Knock, open door. Mm-hmm. That was a knock. I didn't say anything and nobody came in. At that point, I already knew it was a stranger. Well, when I finally said, well, why don't you come in? It was indeed somebody I, I had never seen in my life. And uh, this fellow asked me, uh, are you Mr. Dietrich? And I said, yes. Uh, can I help you? He says, well, no, I'm from uh, Carl Zeiss Jena, which was one of the more famous companies in East Germany, uh, an optical company that, that made high-precision uh, optical implements, uh, cameras and binoculars and stuff like yeah. that. It was well-known pretty much in the world. And this guy said, well, I'm from that company, and I just want to talk with you about what your plans are after uh, you graduate. You're right then and there. I know that he was a phony, and he 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 was such an idiot. He didn't even know that uh, in those days, companies did not recruit students. Uh, all students were assigned. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were at the top of the heap, you had some input. They would ask you maybe, would you like to go here, there? But once you are, you know, uh, once the top five were. Had had their choices. The, the rest of them were were told, "You go there, you go there, and you go there." That was, uh, you know, in return for the free education we got. So, so by him stating that he was sort of recruiting for for Carl Zeiss to me, I, I knew that, that that was phony. And in my mind, immediately uh, a flash came up, and I thought Stasi, East German secret police, because mm-hmm. he was German. Uh, but I didn't say a word, and so we spent some time doing small talk about whatever, you know, how hard it is to study chemistry. And then he he switched all of a sudden. He said, you know what, I got to make a confession. I'm really not from this company. I'm from the government. I thought uh, for a while, that, or for a moment at least, uh, that I could get really funny. Uh, I could have asked him, so what part of the government are you from? <laughs> I didn't, because I already knew sort of uh, what was coming. Uh, but but he, he was very indirect, he, and he said, you know what, uh, I, you know, we just want to know, could you, would you consider maybe, or could you see yourself working for the government one of those days? And that was, of course, code, which I understood, and I, my answer was exactly what he was looking for, and I said, Yes, but not as a chemist. So we, you know, we were, we were communicating between the lines. He, he didn't ask a question that I did not answer. Mm. You understand? But we both understood what the meaning of of, of of this question and answer. So he said, "Hey, we, I want to meet you again. How about some next week or whenever?" Uh, and uh, he invited me to, to dinner at the number one. The most expensive restaurant in town. Wonderful. 
when I get to the uh, uh, restaurant, uh, there he sits at the, at the corner, in the far corner, but there's another guy sitting next to him. Now, here's the thing. In those days, it was customary and, and totally, totally normal for strangers to share tables. Should I approach this guy or not? So I cautiously made a couple of steps, but he got up, came to me, and then he took me to the table, and, he's, and he introduced his fellow. says, this is Herman. He called him Herman. Uh, we are working with our Soviet friends. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we shook hands, and, and I, now I knew that I was fundamentally uh, with the KGB. And, and my, my guy, who never introduced himself by name, he just said, you know, he, he just disappeared. And here I was, like, it was now Herman and me. And, uh, you know, nice guy, and we, we started a relationship. The, the person who knocked on your door, let's call him um, uh, the Carl Zeiss guy, was he Stasi? Uh, see, I thought he was. I believe now that he was not because the KGB had their own volunteers that they were working with. Uh, so uh, it, it's highly unlikely that the Stasi started recruiting and then handed people over to the KGB. Mm. It, what I found out much later through um, um, direct testimony of people who know something about this, as well as, uh, you know, reading and memoirs and so forth, that surprisingly, the Stasi and the KGB uh, did not cooperate very closely. They actually didn't trust each other. Now, think about it. And this is one thing that just popped into my head when I thought about it. Initially, I was supposed to... uh, work on behalf of the KGB in West Germany. Do you know in those days, the Stasi had about a thousand people and agents in West Germany. Wow. Some of those were in high places in the government. What did the KGB need an, another agent in West Germany for? Just because they didn't trust the Stasi. Mm-hmm. So so that's, uh, I'm reasonably sure this, this, this German, this Carl guy was a, um, you know, volunteer for the KGB. Okay. What, what what do you think the Stasi Stasi would have said if they found out that you were actually working for the KGB, or starting to be recruited by the KGB? No, no. I, well, I think there's there there was probably a high level agreement where uh, the KGB w- would notify the Stasi, hands off, don't. This is this is ours. This this guy is ours because they 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 eventually um, see. Uh, I had to disentangle myself from the university. And when I quit, uh, I was, I had to hand in my party document. So this had to go again into the German party apparatus. And I, I, I had an appointment with a lead party official at the university. And so I handed him the document. And his comment was, you know, we, we might not ever hear from you again, but we know that you're out there to do important things for the revolution. <laughs> so, so I was not the first one, and probably not the last, who handed him uh, the party document. So, but tell me about Herman. Who, who was he? What was? Yeah, he, he was a he was a very pleasant guy. He was um, uh, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten years older than me. Uh, still, still, in, I, I believe in his early to mid-30s, um, spoke pretty good German, 
and uh, you know, it was just like it was bright and uh, and very very nice to interact with. We never oh we had one situation where there was a bit of a dissonant tone in our conversation when I I had the audacity to ask him if his real name was actually German, which is the Russian version of Herman. He looked at me like, okay, I found out don't ask any name questions anymore. Because in hindsight, Herman was possibly most likely his cover name anyway, Hmm. because I was was one assigned myself. uh, And I introduced myself to most KGB folks that I met as Dieter. So that was mine, and I bet you he he was Herman. Um, And so we spent quite some time just talking. Uh, He got to know me very well, and I got to know him not as well. Uh, And, and, you know, in hindsight, I know that every time we met, he would go to his office and write a report Mm -hmm. because uh, sources who actually, one source who saw uh, the file that was accumulated in uh, at the KGB uh, archives said there were like seven binders. Full. Yeah, you know, I don't <laughs> just like they were pro- very meticulous in writing everything down. My goodness. Yeah, so uh, it was about a year and a half that we uh, interacted with uh, uh, each other, and initially it was just like just hanging out and talking about it, what what it might be like to to be an agent and and then he started giving me some tasks okay uh some you know some reports to write uh some people to investigate without them knowing that they're being investigated you know find out some information or even find out hey there's a i'm going to give you an address find out who what what kind of a company is in there and -hmm. what do they do and that kind of stuff so uh, it, it was all reasonably innocent i was never really asked to to spy on my fellow citizens, the KGB didn't do that. That was the Stasi would would have done this. And uh, you know, and then after about a year and a half, he he got serious. He says, "Hey, listen, we got to get to to the next level." And so uh, he sent me to Berlin for a three week uh, test trip, so to speak. What what was the trigger point? I mean, of course, the what I understood is, or what I understand is that. Um, Recruiters, they're very good at, at giving compliments and all these things. But, but oh, what, yeah. what was the trigger point for you? Do you remember that? Oh, 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 sure. First of all, uh, the uh, the um, development in that direction, the evolution of me uh, getting acquainted with a thought and eventually sort of liking the thought of becoming an undercover agent, uh, it took quite some time. And, you know, for the longest time, I just like, I thought it was a game, you know, just let's see what happens. I was always a curious sort. Let's see, let's see how far this goes until it got actually serious. And then I I had to make a decision. Uh, In the meantime, I had like sort of played with the idea and there were, there were a lot of pros and there were some cons. The, The cons had to do with the fact that I really liked the town where I lived. I, uh, I had made it to the, into the starting five of the uh, college basketball team, and that was my passion. And uh, I knew I was going to have a phenomenal career. My dream was to become a teaching professor at university. And with my grades, I was a shoe-in, uh, particularly also because I was a party member. Mm-hmm. So, so all of this 
to give all of this up would have been not that easy. But here, so when you're talking about what uh, influenced me to eventually say yes, first of all, I always wanted to travel to the West because I had I had uh, read some literature written by English and particularly French authors, and I wanted to go see the places that they described, number one. And G Germans have something in common, almost all Germans just love to travel. We, there's a German word for which there is no real English equivalent. It's called Wanderlust. That means the joy of, you know, traveling. Yeah. Uh, so that was important to me. Um, uh, I knew I was going to be, I w was going to operate outside of the law. That was very important to me because <laughs> that that sort of made me feel special. You know, that my, Herman already you know gave me uh, West German literature to read, and he encouraged me to listen to West Western radio stations, which both of these things were not explicitly prohibited, but would get you into big trouble. So I already had a I had a uh, you know a taste that uh, you know I would be operating, you know, basically outside the law. Where I would want to be, uh, which you know flattered my sense of being very special. Now, and being very special, you know, if you're recruited by the most powerful intelligence service in the world, that makes you feel special too. Hmm. So, you know, my ego was a huge uh, part in my decision, and you know, not to underestimate, I really believed in the cause. Hmm. You know, ultimately, if you if you don't have a cause to do something like that, uh, you you got to be mentally not right. Then then you are probably a sociopath, and I was not. That that cause was the foundation for e everything else. So you know, as they say in English, uh, <clears throat> I I was going to have my cake and eat it too. The cake being, you know, I would uh, help the revolution to succeed all over the world, and the eating would be that I would be able to. You know, take advantage of all the things, the privileges that come uh, with this kind of an assignment. Then you met uh, Edeltraud. Well, no, Edeltraud was uh, a fling in college, and there was a, a one-night stand after a dance, and she got pregnant, and my uh, my first son was born. Mm. And here's here's an interesting uh, uh, thing that I didn't realize at the time. Uh, in those days, to have children out of wedlock uh, was not was frowned upon. Particularly if you were a party member, you would have had you would normally you they would call you in and give you a, a reprimand for that. You mm. know they wouldn't kick you out, but you know you would sort of be in trouble. Nothing happened to me. Nobody even mentioned anything. So that already gave you an indication uh, of the status I had. Uh, you know, I I couldn't do any wrong, which you know this uh, this was uh, this was not my proudest moment, uh, but it was consensual. So, but listen, let, let, let's go back to uh, because I really think it's interesting with this thing about uh, the cause and and because you were sent to East Berlin for. Uh, three weeks of extraordinary defend training. What 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 was yeah. that? Well, it was a training trip to to begin with. Uh, all I had is uh, was a uh, an address of a street corner and a uh, a code phrase, 
uh, by which uh, I would recognize a uh, a person that I was supposed to meet there. Uh, I forgot what phrase we used for that purpose. It was certainly in German. I only remember the one that I used when I was active in English. Uh, the other person would approach me because they had a description of what I looked like and would ask, uh, uh, excuse me, are you waiting for Susan Green? And my answer would, would have been, yes, you must be David. <laughs> and then we know we know each other. And uh, and we had a similar phrase, but that was in German. So I met, uh, I met Leonid. And, um, you know, Leon, I got into Leonid's car and uh, he told me, you know, go find yourself a, a place to stay for about three weeks. And uh, we would meet fundamentally every other day in his car uh, and talk about things. And he gave me some tasks to do. Uh, he gave me a task to you know, get to know somebody and find out about their relatives in the West. And, and towards the end of my three weeks, he, he told me, okay, in a couple of days, you're going to go to West Berlin. The task was fundamentally just to go to West Berlin. They gave me whatever, 20 marks, take some public transportation, uh, wander around in the streets, get, get, a, get a feel for what the place is like. Uh, I, I had a, uh, a sausage at a stand and a beer, and they were really, really good. <laughs> and then I went back. Now, you know, initially, there's two things that... Uh, uh, I remember I I was somewhat uncomfortable the first 30 minutes hour because I felt that people would know that I don't belong mm -hmm. for whatever reason because the world over there looked different I, I looked like that I could not relate to that world it was uh, rich it was colorful uh, and uh, and even even the cops the uniforms they were light blue as opposed to the dark green in, in, in the east. So I felt uncomfortable. And the other thing, you know, I, I already mentioned it, uh, there was a lot of color and we didn't have any. Uh, in East Germany, everything was brown, light brown and gray. Uh, so, and, but, you know, I got used to it rather quickly. And in the debriefing, I just told him, uh, Boris, and uh, that means I passed another test because this was really a test. I, I know for a fact that some people, some candidates, failed that test. By accident, I met a classmate of mine in a restaurant in Berlin, and we started talking, and he just uh, uh, confessed what took him to Berlin. And he told me that, you know, he was recruited by the Stasi. And when he took that test uh, trip to West Berlin, he came back and told him, I can't do this. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's just across the street, literally. And uh, the stress was such that we were so indoctrinated that we knew we were in enemy territory. And even though it wasn't anything illegal, just the stress for him to be in that place uh, was enough. And so, you know, they kicked him out of the Stasi and uh, he never really recovered in terms of a career. Is, is, is this why you, you write in the book um, 
I, I kind of quote here, the, the mechanics of spying alone, you can learn, but the psychology is a different matter. Is this what you're talking yeah. about? Well, th that's exactly right. Uh, you don't know until you, until you're actually, you can't test that. They throw you in a, uh, in a pool and hopefully you figure out how to swim. <laughs> now there's, there's many predictors that will say, well, this person will probably swim. Uh, that, that is why Herman spent that much time with me. Uh, uh, my, my friend, uh, who didn't make it probably was not, uh, investigated and, 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 uh, looked into long enough to figure out that he was probably not a good candidate. I could have told him that I knew him pretty well. Uh, -huh. uh I, we went to, into, we went to the same school in, in the same class. Uh, for four years, <clears throat> and we both lived lived in the same dorm. But isn't it that you you have to sort of write a contract uh, with the KGB? And and do you, do you remember that uh, moment? There was never there was never a contract, and mm -hmm. that's, that's the most amazing thing. The only document I ever signed with my real name uh, that was a KGB document was a promise not to uh, give away the. Uh, encryption code that I was taught. That was sacrosanct. There was no contract. It was all verbal. There was nothing in writing, period. Amazing, isn't it? Yep. Even, you know, what they told me, we're going to pay you this much money while in training, and when you go to the West, we're going to pay that much, and you can expense this, that, and that. It was all verbal. <laughs> but once you make up your mind, maybe once you made up your mind, what, what was going on, through, what was going through your mind? Well, I, I got to tell you uh, how I was forced to make up my mind rather quickly, which was at the end of that three-week stay in Berlin. Um, it was probably a couple of days before my scheduled uh, return to uh, the town of Jena. <clears throat> uh, Boris took me into the Soviet Army headquarters in Berlin, and that was also the KGB headquarters. And uh, we, he took me into an office, and uh, I got to speak and listen to somebody of authority. I remember he was a short guy who coughed a lot, uh, but he had a very, very steely, um, penet penetrating voice. He did not speak German, interestingly enough. Okay. So, so whatever he said was in, in Russian. I understood sort of half of it because I had a lot of Russian in, in school and in college. And then the other half was translated. And so after about five minutes of nonsensical introductory talk, he came right out with it. And he says, so what, are you in or not? And I'm like, what? I didn't say what, but you know, internally, I, I was not prepared for that. Nobody said, this is, this is you know, the moment where you're gonna be asked to make a decision. It came out of the blue. And, you know, I was, you know, stammering a little bit and, and I, I told him, well, I'm not really prepared. You know, I have to learn some things, you know, I have to learn this, that and that. And he said, like, pretty, we're a very tough guy. He said, don't worry about this. We're going to, we're going to uh, teach you all you need to know. Uh, but we need a decision and we, we don't, we don't like it when people hesitate. So I give you 24 hours Well, by tomorrow noon, uh, you, you, your, your friend Boris here will, will come, we will, you will meet and we want your decision. Now, that made for 
a sleepless night because I was still, you know, this, this, you know, all this, the, 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 the entire time up until that point, I, I still played this like a game and now the game became real. Now I had to make a real decision, a life changing decision, fundamental life changing decision. But how old are you at this time? Uh, I'm 24 or 25 in, in that neighborhood. Wow, it's a big, big decision for that age. B big decision for that age. Uh, again, it, 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 if I had had a good relationship with my parents, my father had left the family, so I, I had no communication with him whatsoever. And the relationship with my mother wasn't really emotional. It was just like, you know, she took, still took care of me to some extent. And, and I, I acknowledged that and thanked her for this. But there was no strong relationship. Uh, if I had had a steady girlfriend, most likely I would have said no. But that was not in the mix. So the only thing that really emotionally held me in, in, in the town where I studied was the basketball team because they had become sort of my family. Ultimately, the flattery and the adventurism and, and the, the ability to do something that uh, very few people can do. So the, the sense of being special just won, not by a lot. I, I tell people that it was like probably the score was 59 to 40, uh, 51 to 49 in favor. So when Boris came over, I said, okay, I'm in. Hmm. No. And, and the, the rest... Uh, then evolved naturally uh, within three months. Uh, I quit my job at the university. I handed in my party document and I was on to Berlin to uh, start my training for espionage. And what, what was that training? <laughs> it, it, it's probably something that will surprise people. There, I never saw a curriculum It, it appeared to me to be co completely unstructured. I was just told by uh, the, now my my new handler, you know, the the lead officer in the in the business we call them handlers. My yeah. new handler, his name was Nikolai. Uh, we would meet, you know, once every week or maybe once every two weeks, and he would just uh, uh, tell me, "Well, now you need to do this," or there were like ongoing tasks. But he would bring. Um, Experts to me, for instance, you know, we're going to start studying Morse code now, or we're going to start, you know, we're going to teach you uh, the in encryption or decryption methodology. Uh, uh, now we're going to do phot photography. We're going to do uh, operational stuff like uh, surveillance detection and on and on. Ongoing stuff was I, I was required to learn a language and I picked English. I was actually, I was given a choice. At that time, the plan was still to send me to West Germany. And then there were some, in between were some tasks, uh, such as, you know, Nikolai would give me the name and address of a person and told me to find a way to become friends with him. And I did. Uh, at one point, it was a couple who lived uh, about an hour and a half outside of Berlin. And I managed to do that too. Uh, I, I went up north, wandered around in that town, and uh, tried to figure out an angle. And I saw 
um, an announcement for some kind of an anniversary of a communist marching band that existed before the Nazis took over. <laughs> so I made myself into a student who's studying history, and I was wandering around in town and asking all knocking on doors, asking all kinds of people uh, about whether what they knew about this this marching band. And slowly but surely, I inched my way to where those two targets lived. And eventually, I had enough recommendations, they said, where people said, oh, you need to talk to these people. <laughs> and so I could knock on the door and introduce myself and said, your neighbor so-and-so said, I should, like, check with you. Well, I sit down, and apparently I had enough uh, innate charm for them to like me. So we established a relationship. You know, I I even got them theater tickets for Fiddler on the Roof. That were, <laughs> those those tickets were fundamentally impossible to get in those days. And I, you know, eventually I found out what uh, the KGB wanted me to find out about uh, a a target, a uh, a relative of theirs who had li lived in West Germany. So I sort of proved that I could really be very inventive and do stuff. Uh, and that's what re what is required of of uh, somebody who works on their own. You, they give you a task and you figure out, you know, however you're going to uh, execute that, that task. Um, so, um, and that, that training in Berlin was two years. Wow. I, two years I got up and I did what I had to do. Uh, I never went to an office. There was no classroom. And consequently, there were very few friends. I did join a, a, a East Berlin uh, basketball team. That was the only social outlet that I had until I met Galinda. And that's when it gets a little tricky. <laughs> Tell me. Well, I met her at a dance, and uh, my God, she was so pretty. She 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 could have easily been Swedish. Very blonde and and light blue eyes. Uh, and uh, you know, this was the first time after that disaster with Rosie that I I fell in love. This is how <laughs> my life changed. So I would join her and hang out in her place, stay overnight, uh, and then accompany her to the university on my way to the State Department, which has it ha had its headquarters nearby, because my cover at that time was that uh, I was studying, I was actually hired by the State Department to eventually become a diplomat and, and work in, in other countries. A, le a legal spy. No, 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 yeah, sure, yeah. A lot of uh, employees, you know, or, or people in in, uh, uh, in foreign service actually are also uh, spies, and particularly the KGB had a lot of those. So this was sort of legitimate, and, you know, my mother was always wondering, really, you want to make that big a career change? And I said, but I can't travel, and I can see the world. And so it, it worked pretty well, and Galinda knew that, I was, you know, going to one of those days go abroad. And then came the moment when I was told that I had to continue my training in Moscow. And that's when I broke up with her. It was hard. But clearly I couldn't tell her what I was doing 
why I was going to Moscow. I had a choice. Fundamentally, I could have chosen the KGB or I could have chosen a Galinda. But if I had chosen Galinda, uh, I would have had the same problem career-wise as my buddy who quit the Stasi. So my, my selfish interest defeated the love interest. It, it, was, it was hard. It was hard for her. Uh, and it was just as hard for me. But, you know, I quickly forgot. As, as, as I got on a plane for my flight to Moscow, my tears had dried up. I forgot about her. That was, you know, that, that's the that's the emotional a toughness and it's not a that's not a plus you know it's the it's a uh, selfish uh uncaring me that i was in those days is it something that bothers you today well i don't like it hmm. but but i you know i i was who i was a thawing of the soul mine was pretty cold in those days Yeah, because you you uh, towards the end of the book, you you kind of you have totally changed your life and have become quite religious. Um, that too, and and start reflecting life and. Yeah. Tell me about it. You know, but there came a moment when when I had a similar choice where it, it was the selfish interest against love, and at that point, love won, and I I I cannot explain how I change and it wasn't a woman it, it, it was a child and maybe it had to take it it had to take a helpless child or you know somebody who is 18 months old is fundamentally helpless totally dependent to that who I loved to uh, actually make a decision that was against my self-interest and uh, you know when my life got to a point where you have this midlife crisis and then with me at midlife started a bit later than the middle of life I would think um, when uh, when my uh, when, when the marriage that I was in at the time was falling apart and my kids were moving old enough they were moving out of the house and I just didn't you know I didn't see any more sense in being I had no more purpose in life And I really, I, I went into a tailspin, and it was the only time I was depressed for quite some time. When I when I read a lot about other illegals, they they have a, a tendency to um, sort of get paranoid and break down and be called back to Moscow for help. Yeah, you you get you get lonely. As a matter of fact, um, they were concerned about my psychological well-being, and they offered me. A periodic sight contact. Mm -hmm. You know what that is? No. So when, when, okay. So there's a prearranged date and time where you get, uh, where you get to see somebody who you know. Just see him. Mm -hmm. Somebody would just show up uh, within sight, and you don't even acknowledge that you know each other. You just look at each other, which sort of, to them, reinforces the connection to. You know, back home, and I told them straight, straight out. I says, I don't want this. I don't need it, and they accepted that. But the the the, the fact that they actually um, suggested that indicates that others liked it mm. and used it, and so that goes right back to the 
the uh, the, the attack on on one psyche. I never felt lonely, lonely, lonely uh, during my time in the United States, uh, even though for at least a year I had almost no interaction with anybody. Wow. You know, before I had my documentation that made me legal, I just stayed in a, a single room occupancy hotel paid by the month and I would leave. I had really nothing to do, but I'd leave in the morning and wander around in the city or go to the movies and come back in the evening. Uh, but in, in between, I wouldn't talk to anybody. It, it, it was it was just not a good idea because the only thing I had as far as documentation was this birth certificate. And I really also didn't quite know how the world works in, in, in the United States, so I had to learn this very uh, slowly. And so for one year, I was all by myself, and somehow uh, that was part of my psychological makeup, even as, as a child, I, I would I would play by myself for hours and and not have the urge to mingle with others, even though I'm, I'm fundamentally mild to, mild to moderate extrovert. But mm. I I was just able to psychologically I I had a lot of strength. You know, at one point that uh, that that well runs dry, but that had nothing to do with spying anymore. And that was the end of part one of the interview with Jack Barsky on his book, Deep Undercover. You can also visit us on Facebook and Instagram and the pages Spice Up Your Life, where I will post extra material from each episode. Hope you enjoy, and until next time, thank you. Bye-bye.